We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us in, it, in your study. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings chapter 57. Maybe we'll get to the end of it today. All right. How about chapter 8? I'm having trouble today. Starting at verse 54. Chapter 8. There's now 57 chapters to King, uh, King, so. And 54. And I'm going to start at 54. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end to praying all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And he stood and blessed the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people, Israel, according to all that he has promised. There has not failed one word of all of his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he has commanded our fathers. And let these my words wherein I have made supplication before the Lord be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night that he maintain the cause of his servant and cause of his people Israel at, the, at all times as the matter shall require that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. So we're looking at this, we've had this long prayer of Solomon that we've covered for the last four weeks. Uh, and he talked about how the people were going to sin and God would you forgive them when, when they repent and all these things that ca came down. And he gets to the end and it says that when he made the end of the praying, and the supplications to the Lord. He arose before the altar from his kneeling with his hands spread to heaven. So that whole long prayer, he was kneeled before God with his hands raised up. And took, it takes a little while just to read it, and I'm sure it took a little longer for him to, to speak it. So this is not a short prayer that he's kneeling before God and giving great honor to. And so he gets up. And he says, he stood in verse 55 and blessed the congregation with a loud voice. And now he turns his face from God back to the people. And he's standing before them. And his first word is, blessed be the Lord that have given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise that he has promised unto the hand of Moses his servant. And I'm really beginning to think a lot about this is how much do we trust God's promises. And it's been kind of an amazing thing to me. I'm getting a new respect for what Job went through when his friends kept hammering him about, you know, you must be bad, because I've had a number of people being stupid around me and, you know, asking me, am I mad at God for, for what's going, what Lynn's going through? Am I having a hard time? And I'm going, why? And I even quoted Job back to them, shall we accept good from God and not evil, and I don't think of what's going through as evil, but you know, Solomon here is promising, God made promises, and he keeps them. And how many times do we struggle when it appears that we're going through bad times to accept what God has given us for the time that we're going through? 
know, and it's really important to me because it really is a sign to me that the people saying these things don't truly trust God. And I know they do. I know they say the right words because I know these guys. I mean, they're nice, kind people, but it shows that in their heart, if this was going through their life, they would be mad at God for whatever reason or, or upset. And I just don't understand that attitude. You know, yes, do I fail, obviously, but, you know, usually I come back and God, you're in God, you're in control, it's, your, it's yours to do, I'm yours to do what you want, and you're good and you will do work all things together for good. But, you know, this is what Solomon is saying. God, you will keep your promises. And he goes back to all the promises given through Moses and Abraham and all of that. And he says, God, you kept your promises. You have given our land. You have blessed us. When we, when we serve you, you bless us. When we keep your commandments, you bless us. The good news is even when we mess up, God still blesses us. He may bring judgment. He may bring troubles and trials. But he still blesses in the end. Because of what Jesus did at Calvary, dying for our sins, God can now be faithful to give us blessings even when we totally mess up, which was true even for the children of Israel. God never gave up on them. Never. Even when they turned their back on him, they turned to idols, they turned to all these things, God gave them so many chances. And he does the same thing to us. And all he's asking us is, remember my word. And that's why he puts us through the trials that he puts us through. To say, do you really believe what you say you believe? And I've said this over and over. Whatever you feel that God is teaching you, get ready for the testing. It's only a matter of time. (laughs) Now, it's only a matter of time before the test will come to say, do you truly believe? And it is our opportunity either to fall flat on our face and be lifted up by God or shine. You know, and say, God, I do believe what you say, and I'm going to stand for it. And then God says, good, now let's get you ready for the next test. You know, and this is the thing we have to understand. Uh, we are either going into a test, in a test, or coming out of a test with God. It's one of those three. When we come out of the test, it may be a little while until we're getting ready to go back into a test. But it means that we're going to be going into a test. Because God is testing us at all times. And why is he testing? Not because he doesn't know whether we believe, but to prove to us what we believe and what we don't believe. Because we lie to ourselves so often. And it's real easy to say, God, I trust you when nothing's going on. God, I know you're good when nothing bad is happening. God, I know that you're going to keep your promises even though, even because nothing bad is happening. I just know that you're going to keep your promises. The hard part is to say, God, I trust you in the midst of the hard time. But that is when we need to be hiding in him all the more and being able to go, God, I trust you. And just lean on him. You know, we have so many songs that we sing, leaning on the everlasting arms, you know, safe and secure from all alarms, you know, and yet when we get into those things, instead of leaning into God, we look at the problem and say, enough of this, I'm going to jump out of the arms and right into the fire. (laughs) And that's exactly what we do when we choose not to stay in him. 
we jump right into the midst of the fire and get really burnt. And God has to lift us back out, dust us off, clean us up, heal us, and get us ready for the next time he's going to put us in, uh, in the fire, frying pan as we want to jump into the fire. But you know, Solomon here is saying God will keep his promises. And this is why we learn the word of God. This is why we get to know his word so that when trials do hit, we go, God, I'm just going to lean on you. Will we do it perfectly? No. I wish I did it perfectly, but I don't. But, you know, it's, it's fun to sit back sometimes when you are in the fire and just watch how God is working. God is always working in our life, and if we can just trust in that, life becomes easier. You know, your, your spouse is angry at you all the time. You go, God, I don't understand this. Your family's angry at you, and I don't understand this. Everything's going bad at work. God, I don't understand it. I'm trying to honor you, and everybody's mad at me at work. Everybody's mad at me at home. What's going on? And God's saying, are you going to trust in me? Okay, God, I guess I'm going to trust in you, but it can wear you down. And it can wear you down when people keep coming in. And we saw that even in Job. Job did real good for a long time. But enough time with his friends keeping, Job, you must have done something, you must have done something, Job, you, you really, we don't understand how you can still trust in God when, when you should be mad at him, and God, you know, God doesn't, doesn't judge people who are good, so you did something wrong, and finally Job kind of loses it and, and starts getting upset with God and saying, I want to defend you myself straight to God. And God was gracious to say, okay, Job, here I am. And Job said, I shut my mouth. You know, standing before God, he shut his mouth. Because I think he realized deep down in his heart he was upset that his friends had led him that, down this path and pushed so hard. And each time we go through a trial, the trial is designed to break, bring us to our breaking point that if we don't fully lean on him, we will break. Because it's not a test if it doesn't bring us to that point. All right? uh, if you're into martial arts and you're getting ready to test for your next belt up and they test you and they have you test against somebody two belts down, that's really not a test. You should beat that person real easily every single time. All right? And that's how God is. He doesn't give us a test. He doesn't say, okay, you're in sixth grade, so let's give you an addition test. You know, one plus one is. <laughs> and you're going to look at them and go, that's not a test. But the test will be where we are at for where we're, where we're at, and it will be a challenge. If we're studied and we truly believe it, the challenge is not that hard because we fall back to what we know, and it's not going to be beyond what we know, but it will take us to the place where, do I truly believe what God has said? Too many times, Israel proved that they did not believe that God was going to give them their blessings and fulfill the promises. And we have Solomon looking around and saying, we have all of the territory we're supposed to have. We have everything from the Mediterranean to right, right by Egypt. We go up to the Euphrates River and we go up to Assyria. We've got all the land that God promised us. He gave us peace on all sides. He has multiplied us beyond all numbers. And he goes, we've got the multitude of the sands and the, and the stars. He goes, we've got people everywhere we look and pointing out to the people, God has blessed us even though we don't really deserve it. And this is the grace and mercy of God, to bless us when we don't deserve it. Even when we fall flat on our face, God still blesses us and says, okay, now we'll get you ready for the next time when we test you on this. And Solomon is recognizing, it says that 
that all of God's word that has not failed one word of his promises. That's beautiful. When we read something in scripture that's a promise that God gives us, count on it. If you need to, write a book of promises so that you remember what God has promised. You know, and what you have promised too. Well, I try not to promise God too many things because I know I'm not going to keep them. <laughs> So, uh, but yet, put down when God blesses you so that you can go back during those hard times and say, God, this is what you've done. Look at his promises and say, God, you've promised to keep me. You've promised to give me, give me safe passage. You've promised to take care of us. And it is true that he will. When we are leaning on him, he will take care of our needs and many of our wants. God is not up there being stingy with us. He wants to reward us. He wants to give us good things as long as we will stay focused on him. And believe me, over the years, I've seen people get so blessed by God that they walk away from him for some strange reason. They get so much stuff that they forget God and walk away from him. And, you know, where have you been? Well, you know, I've been taking my vacation. I've been down at the beach house. I've been on my boat. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. I'm going, I think you've got too much stuff if you're leaving God behind. Now, and unfortunately, that happens so often. We get rewarded by God, and then we forget him. Sometimes rewards can be almost as bad as deprivation. Deprivation usually drives people to God. Rewards can really push people away from God because they start depending on what they have. And this is the hard part sometimes with people with nice paychecks. They start forgetting that it's God that gives them their paycheck and provides their paycheck. And then they forget to tithe and give offerings and everything that they would normally do. And then the stats show that more wealthy people do not tithe than, than poor people. That's kind of a two-way street. When your check is only $200 and you've only given God 20, it's not that big a deal. You know, as opposed to a $2,000 check where your tithe is $200. You know, it's understandable because $200 goes a long ways. It would pay some bills. You know, he, he could pay that poor person's <laughs> check, you know. Uh, so it is a little harder, but if you're determined to, to honor God with the first fruits, you do it. And, you know, we see it over and over again, and I've seen it so many times people pull away from God when the blessings start flowing. And Satan is good at doing it. I don't know that all blessings are from God. Sometimes it can be Satan giving you those blessings, knowing that it could take you away from God. See, not the bad blessings. Huh? <coughs> the bad blessings. It would, they would seem like good blessings, but the result is if they take you away from God, they were bad. Right. You know, and there's nothing wrong with wealth or inherently good with poverty either, but it's our attitude toward it. Huh? Oh, Satan can do anything and many things to us. He can make you depend. He can give you so many blessings that you just start depending on your blessings, which aren't blessings anymore. They're they're a temptation. And God's giving it to you to say, are you going to keep following me? And Satan's saying, yeah, let's, let's get this person to fall and, and start paying attention to their, to their blessings. It's very important for us to always keep our eye on the giver of the blessings, not on the blessings. And it's very easy to fall into looking at the blessings and forgetting who gave them to us. And it's real easy. And Satan understands that. And he puts all kinds of temptations into our path. You know, You've got enough money. Why don't you take? Why don't you take this time off? You need to take some weekends off. You've been very faithful to God for, 
for f 15 years. Why don't you why don't you just take some vacation time and you know all, you know take some weekends off and and is there something wrong with taking a weekend off once in a while? No, there's something wrong with missing. But if you start missing every single month or every other week, then you have to be looking at it and saying, okay, am I starting to depend on my blessings or am I still looking at God? Now, if God's told you to, be my guest. Do what God tells you to, but make sure that it's God leading in you in that way. And he says, forsake not the assembling of yourself. So I don't believe he's going to tell too many people to be away from church a lot. The other question is, what are you doing? If you're worshiping with God, when we went camping as, when I was young with my dad, we had Bible study and we'd sing songs and draw a crowd. You know, and a crowd would crowd, come up and we'd do a Bible study. If I go on vacation, I'm at a church somewhere. You know, it's just, just the way I'm going to be. I'm going to go, you know, be with somebody somewhere. And there's a refreshing time. Sometimes being away can be very refreshing if it's focused on God. And that's why I say it's not wrong to be away from church if, the, if everything is being done right. Yeah, you just don't want it to be a habit or habit on it. Uh, verse 57 says, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us. So here Solomon is pleading with the people we need to keep following God. Now he's remembering back to the judges, the period of the judges where they kept forsaking God and God still kept them. He's probably to a degree thinking about the future because he has already prayed these futures. God, when they sin, forgive them when they repent. When they turn away from you, forgive them. So he's also looking at the future when he knows the heart of man and the people will turn away from God. And we see what happens. Even in our country, we're seeing the results as people turn away from God. More, more thievery, more lying, more adultery, more homosexuality, more murder. You know, why is the murder rate so high? Because people do not respect life because they do not see it in the image of God. They think that we're just a bunch of evolved animals, so why not kill and, and maim people because they're just a bunch of animals? And if you truly believe that uh, evolution is true, the survival of the fittest. I'm, I'm meaner than you are. I deserve to do whatever I want with you. And as long as I don't run into somebody meaner than me, I'm okay. You know, and yet, that really is what's going on out there. You know, they don't see each other as important and created in the image of God. And then they see the, the Christians who believe this as somehow being weak and vulnerable. And they like to prey on that. You know, and we will take abuse because we are going to try to be nice to people and kind to people and give them the benefit of the doubt as much as possible. And the world will look at that and say, you're just a bunch of weaklings. Well, you know what? I'll rather be weak and be, be wrong and serve God than to be mean and nasty and have somebody I should have helped. You know, and I used to tell the people around in high school, and they bugged me about you know, the fact that I had a Bible. I didn't carry a huge Bible, but I had a Bible. I'm going, well, tell you what. You think it's really easy to do? You go carry a Bible around for a week and tell me how easy it was. <laughs> you, know, you, think, you, think, you think I'm weak and you're strong. Let's, let's see how strong you are. But it really is true. To be a Christian and live a Christian life is not easy without God. With God, it's easy. But without God, nobody's going to be able to do it. Nobody's going to be nice and loving and kind to people. And we find out when we step outside of God and stop, step outside that we're all not that nice and kind and loving either most of the time. 
which is why it's important for us to stay in him. And Satan and God will work out these tests to see. And Satan is trying to get us to fall. God is saying, do you, do you believe? And he's going to pick us up and love us when we fail. And Satan is going to try to accuse us when we fail. See, I knew you weren't that good. I knew, you know, you need to really stay, take a self-pity party and not, not go back to God because God would never have loved this stuff and you're not worthy to come back to him. God, Satan is good at piling guilt on us. And we already feel that way anyway. In most cases, if we're truly his, we already feel guilty when we, we fail, and Satan is real good about making sure that guilt gets magnified. And he'll bring just the right people in to make sure that you feel bad, and he'll get into your, own, he'll get into your thinking. And this is why we need to come back to the promises of God. And reading into this, what did Jesus do at Calvary? He took all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our bad things in our life on himself at Calvary so that it can be forgiven. When we start getting on hard on ourselves, we need to really look to the cross. You know, we look to the cross and say, yes, Jesus, this is what you did. And that's why I hammer on the cross so much because it is so important to be able to go to the cross and say, you took all of my failure. Not just my failure, but the whole world's failures on the cross. You took all the sin. When Satan comes to condemn us, just remind him that God, that Jesus beat him with a big stick. <laughs> you know, and then beat him when he tried to get, leave him in death and, and walked out of death. You know, he is defeated. God paid all of our failure. And we really need to be able to understand that. And even when I do anything good, it's only because he gave me the power to do it in. I have nothing, I can do nothing in myself. I can do all things in Christ. And that nothing means nothing. Good or bad, if it's in my flesh, I definitely cannot do any good. And I need to keep this in mind. With him, I can do anything. Without him, nothing is done that's good. And we need to keep this going forward and our mind needs to go back to God's promises. What has he done? And that's everything. <laughs> he has done everything for us. Verse 58 says that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. Note the, the first phrase that he may incline. Again, he comes back to the fact that it's not me choosing to seek him. It's him doing the work. He may incline our hearts unto him. What's Turn to. Make us lean toward. He is the one that makes us lean toward him. He's the one that makes us want to turn to him. And this is the hard part even when we talk about salvation because this is where Calvinists say nobody can get saved unless God saves them. And I understand what they're saying because the Bible very clearly indicates that God is the one that does the work. But he also says whosoever will. So at some point my heart can be turned to him to, to accept him. But ultimately my life in him is him doing everything. 
I become him, his. He gives me a new, new, he makes me a new creation. He gives me a new heart. He turns my desires toward him and starts crucifying the flesh so that everything starts turning toward him. But it's still him doing all the work. Anything I do in my own flesh is just good works that doesn't please him. Now, does that mean I won't do, want to do good works as he changes me? No, as he's changing me, I become more like him, and his spirit in me wants to do what's good. And because I'm crucified and I'm his servant, I do what he desires. And it's him. He inclines our hearts to walk in his ways, to do what, do what he wants, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that which he commanded our Father. So it's him making us desire to do what is right. He doesn't make us. No, we surrender to him and he crucifies the flesh, which then kind of makes us. When I am truly his servant, I'm going to do what he says. But is the servant doing what he wants or doing what the master wants? So in essence, the master makes them serve. Now, they have to have the right attitude and desire to serve the master, which is the new heart he gives me. But I'm doing what he wants. Yes, I can fight him every tooth and nail yeah. you know, and, and live a hard life. And I know many people who may very well be Christians that are fighting God every step of the way, fighting with him. God, all right, you won't know. All right, I'm going to go do this. But I really, you know, God, I'm sitting in my seat, but I'm running around in my heart, you know. I'm being obedient now, but boy, God, if I could just get away with it, I would. <laughs> you know, and there are people that are doing just that. And they're leading miserable lives because they're not getting their flesh over to be crucified to where they desire to serve him. So yes, I understand what you're saying. I don't feel like I'm being made to, but yet I am. Because he is crucifying my flesh, and he has given me a new creation that wants to serve him as he crucifies my flesh. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. I want to serve him as he's given me a new heart, but yet he is instructing me on what to do because he's the master. And sometimes, sometimes he asks us to do things that we don't want to do. And that's when it gets very difficult. And that's when we do almost feel like we're forced. All right, God, if you really, yeah, you really know you want me to, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. And you might not get as good a blessing, but you're still going to be blessed because you did what he said to do. You know, Jonah went, finally went to Nineveh, <laughs> kicking, kicking and dragging his feet and giving a harsh message and then going up on the hill and saying, God, this is why I didn't want to come here in the first because I knew if, you, if they repented, you were, going to, you were going to forgive them, and I didn't want them to be forgiven. And so I don't know that he got much reward. He finally was obedient after having been made to be obedient to the extreme. Yeah. Let's put you in a fish and then get you up near Nineveh and say, are you ready to do this? You know, uh, and he still kicked and drug his feet all the way in, in, in his obedience. And God still used him. This is the amazing thing. God can still use us. No matter how we are. Even when, <laughs> even when we're kicking and dragging our feet and complaining and griping to him about it. He can still use us. Now, is there as good a reward for that as if we had just gone in wholeheartedly? No, I really think it would be better off if I had gone in wholeheartedly, but at least I obeyed. So there would be some reward as long as it's not done in flesh looking for the reward. Uh, 
Did Jonah get any reward? Not as much as he should have if, you know, if he got any because he was really pouty. <laughs> but he did listen to God and preach to them. So there was some reward. But did he get the reward that he could have had? He had one of miraculous evangelism. Tens of thousands of people got saved. The whole city. And he gets mad at God. But you know, but you know, it is really an interesting thing because yeah, Noah, uh, Jeremiah was told you're going to preach your entire life and nobody's going to listen to you. How would you like to be told that? I'm going to give you a ministry and nobody's going to turn. And you got to still keep doing it. And you still have to keep doing it. It would be a tough, tough thing to have happen because you you know, as much as we don't necessarily care about results, yet we do. We still walk by sight to some degree. We want to see something, you know, happen. It's, we don't really want to go out there and see, you know, think that we've been a failure. Now, in the long run, we never are. I know a family that, that moved to Ecuador to be missionaries, and during that time, they ended up with one convert that they knew of. The only thing is that that convert was going back to her village and sharing the gospel and had lots of people getting saved that they knew nothing about for, you know, until they were getting ready to leave. And they were discouraged. They were unhappy. One convert after, after four years down there. And yet they had an entire village being converted. And if they had just known that, they could have been going to the, going to the village to teach. But they were so focused on where they were at. And this is something we have to be careful of. Sometimes we feel like failures. And God's saying, that, I don't see you as failure. You've touched this person, this person, this person, and they've touched other people that you don't know anything about. When we get to heaven, we're going to see rewards that we don't know anything about. And people are going to go, you know, I watched you, or you know, I got saved because somebody else watched you got saved, and now I'm saved because they got saved. And we don't know the impact our life is having on people. And we've got to be careful to not get down. Yeah. There's sometimes I look around and I'm going, God, I still only have 22 people in this church. Now, is it, are we doing anything? And I go, yeah. And then we point out, yes, there's all these different lives that have been changed. I'm going, okay, God, you're right. But help me not to get into a pity party because it is difficult sometimes. Internet, really huh? You're on the internet. <laughs> yeah, we're hurt by a lot of people. Yeah. But, you know, it can be easy to get down. You know, easy to get down and say, God, what, what good am I doing? What good am I doing? You want your kids to go in the wrong direction. God, what, what kind of a parent am I? You know, you, you watch different things going on. You go, God, I just don't understand how am I doing anything. And God's saying, just keep serving. Just keep serving. Verse 59 says, And let these my words, wherein I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require. So here again he's saying, God, you will maintain. Again, we are his servants. We are his sheep. He will take care of our needs if we just stay focused on the fact that he's the shepherd. He will give us the food that we need. He will give us the provision we need. He will give us the strength we need. The problem comes out so often is that we take our eyes off him and somehow we think we need to maintain. 
God, I have, to in, I have to incline my heart. I have to maintain my righteousness. And God is saying, uh, I don't know where you're, where you're coming from because it's me. I give you the desire to come to me, and I'm the one that maintains your life. And when we really think about this, if God just wanted to destroy this world as he will at the end of the millennial kingdom, all he's got to do is stop maintaining the atoms. The very atoms are held together because God holds them together. The proton cannot exist without God holding it together. Science calls it the atomic force because they don't know what it is. They don't know why the protons, the nucleus stays together, and they don't know why the electrons don't come crashing down into the, to the protons. Because God, because God literally holds together everything. And when we get to the end of the millennial kingdom, he's just going to say, okay, let go, poof. The entire known world falls apart because he says, okay, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm not tired of them, I'm done, I'm done holding, I'm done holding everything together, and it's gone, and he creates a new heaven and new earth. But that's how easy it will be for him to destroy you. Oh, no more holding it together. It's gone. And everything will disappear, and he'll start all, all fresh and create a brand new heaven and new, new earth for all of his people. Now, but it's all him holding it. He maintains. He holds together. And in verse 60, he says that the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that it, there is none else. Let your heart, therefore, be perfect with the Lord your God to walk in his statutes and to keep his statutes as at this day. Why does God do all this? So that people will know that he is God. Why does he do it for us? To show us that he is God. It's a pretty amazing thing because it gets so easy and I fall into the same temptation. God, you know, I'm just going through mundane daily activities. And when you're going through the daily mundane activities, it's easy to forget God. I get up in the morning, I, may, I get to say my prayers, I read my couple chapters in the Bible, I go to work, I come home, do whatever I do that night, go back, go, go to bed, get up the next day, read my chapters in the Bible, pray to God, go to work, and nothing seems to be happening, nothing, nothing exciting, and, but God is saying, just stay faithful. It's actually harder to stay faithful to God in the mundane, day-to-day -day activities than when he's moving in, in a big way. Because when he's moving in a big way, we know he's working. It's easy to pay attention to him. On mundane days, we have to listen to that still, small voice. God, what is it you want me to do? Who do you want me to minister to? How am I going to minister today? And it might just be being a good employee, being a good spouse, being a good mother or father, whatever, whatever it is, be a good business person, whatever it is. And God's saying, I just want to see, can you be faithful? And I've shared this many times. If we look at the life stories, we, we look at the life story of Abraham. Abraham's entire 137 years is, is covered in about eight chapters. And there's only six or seven things that happened to him in his whole life, according to the Bible. Now, we know he had long periods of time where nothing seemed to happen, where he was just faithful to God. Every single person that you can look at in the scriptures had long periods of time where they just lived a mundane life. Abraham was one. Moses. Now Moses had a little more excitement 40 years in the wilderness, but even if you figure that, they still didn't cover much of what happened there. 
As Israel went into, into disobedience, God did this, and, and, and we redeemed them. Over and over again, that's what happened. It wasn't the times when everything was going right. You look at the life of Joseph. Well, Joseph saw some visions, was sold into slavery, was falsely accused of rape, was raised to, raised to the number two position in, in uh, Egypt. Did some, at that point, we start hearing a lot about him. He's in charge of maintaining the, the nation for six years, and, and his family comes and gets rescued. He lives over 100 years. How much time did he spend just doing the day-to-day -day things that God told him to do? We need to keep this in mind because sometimes we forget that all these people, even in a biography, we don't read, well, today, got up, went to the church, came home. Got up, went to the church, went home. Got up, went to the, no, that would be the most boring book to read 28 pages for 50 years where they, nothing happened and had a, oh, this, this, and this happened. Okay, another five months of got up, went to, you know, got, did my business, went to bed, got up. You know. But that is what life is. It's a mundane activity without God. Now, does God want to work in our life every day? Yes, if we're looking for it, he'll give us those opportunities. How many times have you been talking with somebody and been able to share the gospel with them and you had no intention of doing it necessarily. You just started talking about God. Yeah, it happened to me today. I was talking to a bunch of people. And we were actually talking about history. And we got talking about God. But this is the value of listening to that still, small voice. And recognizing God in the small things. And God says in the scriptures, despise not the day of small beginnings. How often in our lives do are we looking for God to do something big? God, you know, I, I really want to do something big. Yeah, you gave me that chance to talk to that person. You gave me that chance to talk to that person. But God, I want to, I want to do something big for you. And God's saying, you know, you've got plenty to do. And we, if we're not faithful in the small things, he's definitely not going to give us big things to do. We need to stay faithful in the small, mundane things before he says, okay, let me give you big things. And to get to the big things, there's lots of trials involved in getting there. And if you read any of these books about the, the biographies we have in there, these guys got no, well known for things, but what did they go through to get there? You know, are we ready to pay the price that they went to to get to the big things? Most of us aren't. You know, and it's tough. And if we can't stay faithful in the mundane, then God gives us some test and we can't stay faithful there, he's going to say, you're not ready. You're not ready for the big thing. You know, and we see over and over, George Mueller starts out just needing thousands of dollars every month to feed these, feed these kids, got to the end, or pounds in their case, got to where he needed 10,000 pounds a month to take care of his kids. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot of money necessarily to us in our day, but when he was ministering, that was almost a million and a half, two million dollars a month to take care of his orphanages. He had no money. He had no big benefactor. You see somebody like Corey Tenboom who, who had to learn some hard lessons and it was her sister that maintained her through most of them. Then her sister dies and she continues going forward and then God says, now I want you to forgive all those Russian sol uh, German sol soldiers that, that mistreated you. She, be, she just about became unglued at first. Finally got to where she could. Are we ready to face the same type of struggles when God says, are you ready 
to do the really hard things. You think you want to do the really hard things. With hard things come hard tests. And so most people go, no, if they're really thinking it through, they don't want it. But most people keep going, God, I want, I want to do something big. I want to, and God says, okay, well, let's give you a test. Nope, you're not ready. Let's give you another test. Nope, you're not ready. <laughs> you know, how hard is it to step out for God in some of these tests? To step out when you go, God, I don't see how we can afford this. I don't know how we can do this. I don't know if we can do, I don't know if we have the right people to do this, and we're going to step out anyway. It gets hard because that's where faith comes in. If I can do it, there's no need for faith. If it's something I can do, then God's probably not in it. God gives us plans that need him to, to fulfill. And it's, it's interesting because I look at our church. You know, when, when I got here, we had a $600 a month budget and barely brought that much money in. Now we have a budget of $3,300 a month. Now, do we always hit it? No. But you know what? God is doing a lot of things through this church, this little tiny church of 20-some people. There's all kinds of things that we do to reach out. Can we do more? I'm always looking for God, what God wants to do for that's a God-sized issue. And there's a few things kicking in the back of my mind that are some God-sized issues that I'd like to see us take on. I don't know that we're ready yet. I'm not sure that he's ready to move, for us to move in that area. Because most of them need people. <laughs> You know, a few more people than we have. <laughs> now, we can step out, but I don't, you know, you all know that I'm the type of person, if we can't do it the right way, I don't want to do it. Uh, this is my problem with the broadcast. I don't know how this broadcast is going out, and it bothers me not knowing. Because if it's not worth going out, I don't want to do it. I want everything, this is why we use really good pens as our, as our giveaway pens. I want people, because people look at this and say, you know, this is a quality pen. It's not this piece of plastic stuff that most churches give you as a, as a giveaway pen. You know, uh, so we need to look into these things. What is God expecting us to do? Each one of us, he's expecting us to do something only he can do. And that's challenging and scary. Because if we can do it, it's too small. It really is too small. It's not God. Verse 62, and the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, 22,000 ox, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings and the father of peace offerings. And because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offerings and meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. This is a big sacrifice. <laughs> um, it is so big that instead of just using the brazen altar, they just made a great big bonfire in the middle, <laughs> middle of the temple because they're going, we have too much. I can't even picture... 22,000 oxen being killed in one afternoon. That is a lot. 120,000 sheep. All right. This is blood everywhere. This is animals. And note that this is peace offerings. Now, some of you may not remember about peace offerings. Not so much. The peace offering didn't have to be the perfect animal. The peace offering was 
that the shoulder was sacrificed, was given to the, to the priests, the innards was sacrificed on the fire, and the rest of it was eaten by the, by the, by the person who sacrificed it in, within 24 to 48 hours. This is a lot of food that has to be consumed in less than two days. All of Israel is there, so I mean, he's having plenty of people to help eat it. But remember the peace offering, the, the one pastor that I, I listened to called it a party with God. All right? You took this one and you, you offered the oxen, the, the priest got that one quarter, God got on the innards, and you took the rest of it home and you baked it and you just called all your friends to the party and you've just partied for God. This is my peace offering. This was given to God and we're just going to celebrate. And so 120,000 sheep, 22,000 oxen. That is a huge sacrifice going on. That's a lot of blood being let, let go in the temple. You know, now we do know that the temple had ways for the blood to flow down into Kidron Valley because Josephus talked about the, the second temple uh, on a Passover night where, the, where they killed so many sheep for the Passover that the, the, river, the, the river or the creek ran red because of how much blood was being shed at the temple. This had to have had something similar. The smell, everything. But the, the whole purpose of this is what a sacrifice this was to honor God. And Solomon is saying, we've got, you want food, people? We've got food. You, you came here to celebrate the dedication of the temple? We are going to celebrate. We're, we're, you are going to get so tired of oxen and sheep that you're not going to want any more after this. <laughs> well, we probably did want it after a while, but you know, we have this all having to be consumed within 48 hours. This is a peace offering. It has to be consumed within 48 hours of the time it's killed. So this is a party. This is a party where they're, they're, they're sacrificing the parts they have to sacrifice, and all around, all around the temple is probably these barbecue pits everywhere. 22,000 minimum, <laughs> you know, plus, plus some for all the sheep. You know, but this is a celebration that goes on. But we think about this and saying, this is a sacrifice. This is how much Solomon was honoring God. He got to build God a temple. Not that God was going to dwell in it, but he, his purpose, as God, God and David had said, you know, was to build something that was at least a little bit worthy of God. A little bit. All through the Middle Ages, in churches, the churches tried to build cathedrals that were worthy of God. And they built beautiful buildings, almost to the place where people worship the building rather than God. And this is what happens for Solomon. Solomon's temple starts getting worshipped as the building, not God. And this is the problem that we can have that if we make things too nice, we start paying attention to what we have rather or what we have built rather than the God. Oh, no, Notre Dame. I'm not going to say that that's why it burned down. I mean, that's, it's been around for a long time. And this is something, you brought that up, but anytime something bad happens to somebody or it appears to be bad, we've got to be careful not to judge 
that they that they deserved it. You know, uh, you know, even if it's even if it is true, it doesn't really matter. Our job as believers is to minister to that person the best we can and encourage them to still seek God, not to be sitting there and trying to assign blame or who you know. That's what Job's friends did. We know why Job was challenged because God said, "Moses, Satan, have you thought of have you thought of my servant Job? He's a really good man. He hates evil." Oh yeah, sure, I thought about him, but you won't let me touch him. All right. Uh, Job had done nothing wrong to deserve what was happening to him. Now, was he an absolutely perfect man? No. Was what he went through to teach him things? Absolutely. There were things Job learned by what he went through that God was trying to teach him. Because he was a prosperity gospel person. He did believe that if you do right things, God was going to bless you. And if you had great blessings, you were blessed of God. He did believe it, so God had to work on him as well to show him that, that what he believed was not true. And sometimes what we go through is just for that. God's saying that you believe some things that just aren't quite true, and I'm going to help you learn by putting you in a place where you think is not right. That's what Job went through. God, I've been doing everything right. I don't understand why I'm going through this. It just, you know, I'm not supposed to lose everything. When you do right, you're supposed to be blessed. And he was a prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that's being taught today is not new. We see it all the way back in Job's day. And Job believed it. You look at his answers. When friends accused him of things, he's going, I know that what you're saying is true, but I have not been disobedient to God. I know that those who are disobedient to God get punished. I know that you know, those who are wealthy are blessed by God and doing right by God. And you look at his answers, he was agreeing with the people, saying, I know what you're saying is true, but it's not true of me. God was trying to teach him a lesson that, Job, you don't know me. Many of our trials is God saying, you don't really know me. You think you know me. Let me show you that, you, that I'm much bigger than you think I am. I'm much vaster than you think I am. One of the things I have learned about following God over the years is God is so much bigger than I ever thought he was. Which means I'm still not thinking big enough. And I have a big, powerful God in my mind. And it's still too small. And you'll note that as you follow God, the longer you follow him, the more you're going to see that he, the greater his love is, the greater his mercy is, the greater his grace is, the greater his strength is, the greater his, his compassion is, the greater his desire for us is. And the more we walk with him, the more we see him in deeper and deeper ways that really blow our minds. God, I never thought. I just didn't understand. You, you love that deeply? You, you desire us that much? When we truly understand what Jesus did at the cross, it'll blow our minds. And we'll never fully understand what he did at the cross. He took all the anger of the Father for all the sins of all time upon himself. He stayed on the cross because he loved us. You know, it wasn't the nails that held him on that cross. You know, it, it wasn't anybody holding him on that cross. It was because he decided desired to stay there for us. And I can picture this. I can, the angels are charged with protecting him and keeping him, and they're standing all around the throne and probably looking at the Father and going, how long are you going to let these miserable and rotten human beings do this? 
And, he's, and the father's saying, Stay, stand still. Stand still. The angels didn't know what was going on. They were clueless. People did not know what was going on. And when we really understand the desire that God has for us, and then when we think we understand it, then he'll start showing us that we still don't understand it. And then when we think we understand just a little bit more, he'll still show us that we don't really understand. Because he wants us to learn to love others with that same love. And it's tough. It is tough to take somebody who is totally abusive to God and his people and love them. It is hard. And yet God is saying, this is my test for you. Are you going to love this person? Are you going to love this person? How kind are you going to be to this person? Are you going to show them my love so that they can be drawn to me? And it's tough. There's times when I get frustrated when I've been ministering to somebody for so long and it's like, just want to grab them by the neck and shake them. When are you going to turn to, turn to God? <laughs> you know, which would blow everything. <laughs> you know, which would blow everything that, that's been worked on. But you know, God is helping us learn to be able to minister and just to love and be learning his heart toward people. And it is hard. The sacrifice, this was a big sacrifice, and they're having a party for God. And it's not going to be long before they're turning away. Solomon is going to turn away. Mostly because he gets too many wives and he didn't listen to God. Because he starts building temples for his wives. He's got 300 wives and 700 concubines, and he starts building temples for his wives. And you know how that conversation goes. You know, he, hey, Solomon, you know, you know, you've never been worshiping my God. I don't even have a place to worship my God. You've got a place for worshiping your God. And nagging long enough, got him a temple. Once they had the temple, you know the next part was, uh, Solomon, you've never come to my, my temple with me. Oh, never going to do that, never going to do that, never going to do that. Next thing you know, he's in their temples. And the next thing, he's not following God. Step by step, we get away from God. Little foxes coming in our life, little places that we give Satan a foothold, and he expands from that, that spot. We need to be very careful to not give Satan any territory in our mind, in our heart, because he will take, you give him an inch and he'll take 100 miles. <laughs> he won't even take a mile, he'll take 100 miles. You give him just an inch, and he'll say, okay, I'm in. I am in. We need to be so careful about what we allow into our minds, which is why I encourage us. We need to be in God's word every day. We need to be reading the, through the Bible every year. Does that mean we totally wipe out all other activities? Ideally, I think we should, but I understand that nobody's ready for that. So, you know, but just make sure you're putting a lot of God's word into your, into your life. Because we can balance out the negative to a degree. And this is one of the things I've said. You know, when I watched TV a couple weeks ago when, I was, when Lynn was having that surgery and saw all the stupidity of COVID-19, I understand why everybody's panicked about it. You're bombarded on the TV by COVID-19. I'm bombarded by my, radio, my Christian radio station with COVID-19. I am no longer listening to the Christian radio station. I'm listening to my things that I have downloaded on my phone when I drive. And I'm surprised they keep talking about Christian radio. 
Well, they just keep, and I'm just so tired of it. You know, it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But you know, what are we filling our minds with? All the panic that is on here or the fact that God is still in charge? Now, is there something to be careful about? Yes, this disease is harmful and everything, but you know, the panic that the world is creating is not worth it. God is still in charge. If God wants me to get it, I'm going to get it no matter what. Now, that doesn't mean be stupid and go around hugging and kissing everybody who has a disease. But it also doesn't mean to panic about everything. You know, and you know, for us, we also need to be careful because if somebody's wearing a mask and they're worried about it, don't be making fun of them. Don't tease them. It's, they've got a concern. That's between them and God. I know a man who's not going back to his church again probably because his church made fun of him and his wife wearing a mask. And that's stupid. You know, especially when his wife has, treats a patient with COVID-19. So in their case, it's better for them to wear it. Yeah, please wear a mask, right? It would be, please wear the mask just in case you got it. But they made fun of him with the idea that you know, it's not needed. We need to be very careful about this. You know, and I've, had, I've stopped even people here that have made, some, you know, made comments about it, and it doesn't, if they don't feel comfortable with it, let them do what they feel comfortable with. The fact that I don't feel comfortable, that, that, that I don't feel a problem and you don't, is irrelevant because people are just going to judge us anyway. They're going to say, well, see, you're, you're, you're potentially passing it. So either way, we're not going to win. So just talk to God, find out what he wants you to do, and live within that, live within that uh, style. Because ultimately, we're accountable to God. And that's what's the most important. Last two verses in this chapter. And at, the time, at that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, great, a great congregation from, from the entering of Hamath unto the river Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and seven days, even fourteen days. On the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went there to their tents joyfully and glad of, in their heart of all the goodness that the Lord had done for David and his servant and for Israel his people. A 14-day party. <laughs> pretty, pretty good party. They may, have taken a four, they may have taken 14 days to kill all the animals. Uh, you know, this, this is a celebration before God. We see this on a couple of places in the scriptures where they're so excited about what they do that these turn into long celebrations. And I wonder, do we ever get that excited about God? That we will say, God, I am just, I just want to be in your presence. I can't not be in your presence. I love it. I love it when there's that whole idea of, I want more. More and more. <laughs> just give me more. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of sad that in America, our churches have gotten to the place where if you have a longer than one hour service, you know, looking at their watch, looking at their, looking at their clock, uh, yeah, what's going on? Our church is good. We don't do that here. Yeah. Yeah, we don't do that here, but it happens a lot. There are churches literally where people will walk out after one hour you know, because they look at and say, it's too long. It's not what God desires. And I'm thinking the early church met every day. 
In the book of Acts, it says they met daily. And how long? Well, we have one picture of Paul preaching, and at midnight, the guy falls out the window because he fell asleep in the window, dies, he's resurrected, and they go right back to preaching until dawn. How many of us are ready for a six, seven, eight, ten hour message time? I wouldn't mind doing it. I really wouldn't mind having, a, having an event. I have never preached where somebody has, where, where people have wanted more and more and had, had me had be tired out before they did. In America, our people are spoiled. Everybody has so many Bibles that they don't read. You know, they don't spend time looking for God. And if you have a long service, they're like, okay, we're, we're tired, what's going, you know, it's time to get going. Yeah, NASCAR's coming, uh, the football game's coming, the basketball game's coming, my, my favorite movie's on at, at, at uh, 2 o'clock, you've got to stop. Uh, the, the roast is going to be ready, you know, so we gotta, i got to get home and fix that, take care of that roast. All these different things that come in that are more important than God's word. But, you know, the whole idea is, God, how much are we going to depend upon you? How much are we going to seek you? And I'm not saying it has to be in the church. It should be in our homes that we're seeking God. I love getting into Bible study and reading the Bible and studying at home. I, I love being able to present here. I love being able to speak and teach. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it as much. I love to teach even when I'm talking to people just out of the blue. I end up teaching a lot of times. Why? Because it's what I'm called to do, and I know that's what I'm called to do. And I just find it so much fun. And when people want it, it's really easy to continue to, and continue and continue. All right. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to stay focused on you. Help us to enjoy being in your presence, Lord, to seek you and be ready to spend as much time with you as we can. And help us to understand all of that. And Lord, help us to know that you are the one that maintains our life. You are the one that keeps us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.